We are live. What up, everybody? It's your boy, Nick Caputo. Welcome back to the Grub from the Garden podcast. I am here with Ayla Cuenca, and we are going to talk about all things childbirth and reproduction. So welcome, Ayla. You can introduce yourself. Hi, Nick. Uh, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. Uh, my name is Ayla Cuenca, and I am a birth coach, a holistic birth guide, childbirth educator, um, and placentophagy expert. So I also train people in the art of placentophagy and placenta consumption. Awesome. <laughs> so let's dive right into it. Um, let's talk about a little bit, uh, give everybody kind of some background about you, um, what exactly that you do with your clients or where you started with this, with this journey just so people can understand who they're, who they're listening to here. Sure. So um, I worked in birth photography for quite a while. And um, after holding space for families and women um, in that setting, I started um, attending births as a doula, which is a non-medical coach, right? So I work with a woman through her pregnancy, offering education, and then I work with her throughout the labor and the birth, and then I'm present during her postpartum period, um, assisting her with breastfeeding and supporting her with choices regarding diet, regarding sleeping, like anything that you can think of that comes up in postpartum, I can be there as a support system, kind of bridging the gap between her and maybe the medical industrial complex, maybe her family, maybe expectations, whatever it is. Um, and I'm also an educator, so I do a lot of classes one-on-one -on -one and in large groups. And the purpose of my classes really are to just help women remember what they already know, right? So this knowledge that already exists within, within them is just activated. So I just kind of guide them in that reactivation process. Um, and then also prepare them for whatever setting they're going to be birthing in, whether it's at home or in the hospital or or if they're having an unassisted birth without any type of uh, medical intervention or a medical provider present, and that can happen anywhere, it can happen out in the woods if they want it. So really just um, creating a vocabulary around that so that they feel prepared because so much of the fear that we feel around childbirth and the unknown is that we just don't have enough information. And we don't really learn about birth anymore growing up because we're not living in multi-generational households. So there is this missing piece of the puzzle that is so crucial for our ability to birth that I'm just trying to support people and into reintroducing that into their lives. Um, and then I also do training. So I train birth workers. Um, I train people in placenta preparation um, and working with the placenta. Um, and I'm also a mother. So I, <laughs> I homeschool and raise my, my daughter who's almost six years old. Love it. Love it. And I'm very excited for this conversation. So there's yeah. a bunch of stuff that we're going to talk about. And thank you for sharing that, by the way. So a couple things, uh, I guess, like main categories of things. Um, I want to ask you a couple things about um, actual like protocols that you do. So for uh, like pre-pregnancy, mid-pregnancy, post-pregnancy, just couple things that I typically recommend that I would like to get your thoughts on and just kind of pick your brain about a couple things. Another topic that I want to talk about is um, pretty much what common things 
that you normally recommend against or things, you know, like, like birth trauma and circumcision and forced vaccinations for mothers and things of that nature. And then uh, Gota, I'm interested in um, how you connect Gota with, with this. Very, very interested to hear that, but we can, uh, we can save the best for last and, and talk about that last. So uh, first, I guess we can talk about um, like the what society does wrong type stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> so first, um, let's talk about like the location of birth. So if you were to say like an ideal location for giving birth, would you say like, are you a big proponent of like ocean birth, water birth? Um, like squatting, like standing, like home birth, like you said, in the woods or something like that, um, as opposed to hospital, like what would be your ideal? Like if it was up to you, like to pick the one best place to give birth, what do you think it would be? So if it were up to me, I would want a really cozy space out in a secluded area. So I would want some kind of like hut or yurt or um, shelter that provided me a lot of comfort and support, like <laughs> okay, a, a lot of pillows, a lot of access to resources that I desire and that I choose, um, but to be in a place where I'm undisturbed and I'm not going to come across any kind of predators or people, strangers that are trying to intervene with my process, right? So that's my ideal scenario. Um, and I think you know, I can make that happen for myself because I have the resources. But I think right now, most people, their options are really a birth center, a home birth or a hospital birth, right? Um, I typically, you know, I know I've worked with women who've birthed in the ocean because there are here in Miami, there are a lot of places that you can go that are secluded to birth in the ocean. I personally wouldn't go into the ocean at night to birth because that's my own phobia. So if I went into labor at night, I wouldn't go birth in the ocean, but if it were the daytime, I would. (laughs) So, you know, it just, it all comes down to what I feel aligned and comfortable with, Um, you know, but the bottom line for a setting that a woman can birth with ease is wherever she feels most comfortable, right? If we watch a cat or a dog or other animals birth, where do they go? They go to the place where they feel the safest, the most secure, and where they're free from any kind of predators or predator intervention. And so unfortunately in the hospital setting, um, you know, some women, they genuinely feel I'm the safest here in this space. Everything that I need is here. And this is where I can really dilate and open and relax. And that's fine. However, that type of birth setting is highly um, regulated. Uh, it's for the baby more so. Yeah, for the mother and for the baby, right? So a lot of women say, I wanna have a natural birth, but I'm gonna go to the hospital. Um, because I think there's this illusion of safety that comes with birthing in a hospital. So they want to have this more free, liberated birth in a safe, comfortable space, but they go to the hospital because they think that that's where safety lies, you know, all the technology, all the people. But what do we have there? We have strangers, right? And the animal mind, the animal body recognizes that as a predator, as a threat, especially if we're not vibing with that specific individual. Mm -hmm. Um, Even on an energetic level. Like on by in, the, in the hallway, like can yeah. mess with the whole vibe. Definitely. Exactly. So yeah, those are the three main options for women right now. And women are trying to, you know, kind of hybridize things like they're going to get a pool um, and put it in their home or in their birth center. Yeah. Maybe yeah. the hospital accepts it. You know, people are really just kind of pulling for whatever they think is going to give them this 
ideal, comfortable experience. Um, and so what I invite people to do is during a pregnancy, kind of like dream board where you feel safe and no holds bar, right? Like, oh, it's in my grandfather's cabin in Wyoming, right? So like you start kind of paring down where it is that you want to, where you feel the safest normally mm. and apply that to your birth plan. And you can create that and you can make that possible. It's not like we're completely restricted when it comes to birthing. We create that restriction in that prison in our own minds. I love, that perspective. I love the perspective of wherever she feels safe. So you would say that like the difference between a, a water birth and a not water birth, it doesn't really make that much of a difference for like, as far as like health wise for the baby and for the mother and whatnot. It's just an option if the mother feels more comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, birthing in the water can feel nice because the warm water actually does ease a lot of the, the tension in the joints, right? You're not, gravity's not pulling you down, right? So you're not feeling that pressure. You can be buoyant, you can float. Energetically, the water can, can bind you to your partner, right? So I've, I've had par partners tell me, I started feeling sensations that she was feeling just by being together in the water because water has that power. Water yeah. has the power to transfer that energy. So that can, it can be beautiful for that reason. I labored in the water for a long time personally, but when it came time to, to push and I was really going into my animal body, I crawled out of the water and like found this spot in my bed that I created with all these pillows and like was kind of hiding, you know, and that's where I was able to completely open. So we can idealize it. And it's great to try, but we just have to really surrender to where the animal body wants to go. Makes sense. Makes sense. You got to go with the intuition, whatever, whatever you're feeling. Wow. Yeah. So let's talk a little more about um, the hospital and what goes on in the hospital and why exactly um, it's the illusion of safety rather than um, genuine safety. So we talked about strangers a little bit. Um, let's talk about medical interventions that may be, if not completely forced, at least heavily pushed in a way that can make the mother feel uncomfortable. Okay, so from the beginning of the pregnancy, because of, like I'd mentioned to you like previously, you know, we get a lot of our understanding of birth and pregnancy through Hollywood. That's our primary source of education. The secondary source of education about birth is the stories we hear from family and friends, right? Oh, someone's cousin, X, Y, Z, this happened to her. You definitely have to go to the hospital, blah, 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 right? So we get all of this kind of drama-based education um, about birth and pregnancy. So when a woman becomes pregnant, automatically it's like, I'm excited, but I'm also now in pathology, right? It, she puts herself into the space of it being pathological um, and she needs to go get herself checked out and she needs to speak to a specialist and she needs to make sure that she checks off all the boxes and nothing's wrong and she's not sick and the baby's not sick. So immediately we're energetically in a space of fear and needing to mm. be monitored. Not all women go into that space, but I would say like 99% of women go into that space. That's who contacts me. That's many women who contact me are in that space and that's okay because that's where we're at. And so- That's what you're here for. <laughs> right, so- so what happens is we end up going to a medical provider. Typically it's a man. Um, there are a lot more women OBs at this point, but this is who we go to. We go to a, a male OB and they say, okay, we're gonna have to run a series of tests. The woman might say, hey, you know, I'm interested in having a natural birth. And they'll say, well, 
you know, we're going to keep an eye on things. I'm not really sure if that's going to happen, if it's possible. Sure. We'll, you know, we'll just keep an eye on things. So it's already creating this foundation of I'm, I'm potentially ill. Something could potentially happen and we need to stay in this space of safety so that I get out of this and come out on the other side safely. Um, and you know, you're going there pretty frequently to the OB, you're getting multiple ultrasounds and that ultrasound technology is um, really difficult for the baby. Uh, if you, we don't have studies on humans and ultrasounds, it's not ethical, but we do have a lot of studies on pregnant mice and ultrasounds. And we see that the brain in those, um, in those fetuses, they never fully form when they're exposed to consistent ultrasound. And so what they're deducing from these studies is that the brain is not fully forming and they're developing. It's like if you put a mouse who's been exposed to ultrasound regularly throughout their pregnancy and then they're born, you put them in front of options of which tunnel to go through and they have a really difficult time choosing and you see all these lags in their ability to decide which tunnel to go through, right? So their decision-making process is completely um, obstructed. Yeah, and, and so with my perspective on sound, because we we sound music is our real food, rhythm is our is our real food. So like when you're in the womb, your mother's heartbeat is structuring your entire body, structuring the waters in that are making up your entire body. So by putting in an ultrasound, like a technology, like a human machine bullshit kind of sound frequency, it's just messing up the structure of the waters that the baby's floating in. So it only makes yeah. perfect sense that it would mess something up. Totally. And not so to mention, Senta is making a, a sound, like an ocean sound. Like when you put your ear up to a conch shell, it's mm. this pushing sound. So the baby's hearing that and the mother's heartbeat, right? So you're going to get a series of ultrasounds and they're going to say, oh, the baby looks like it might be kind of large. We're going to keep an eye on this. And suddenly a woman who's totally healthy, young, has no issues, low risk pregnancy is getting all this information that there are so many potentials that put her at risk. Hmm. Right. Um, and then comes the time of, you know, presenting her birth plan and she wants to do all these things. And the doctor says, well, this is a great birth plan. However, you know, I don't let my clients go 40 weeks past their due date. So if you, if you go past your due date, we're going to induce you. And women typically don't know that they have an option to seek out a different medical provider, right? They don't know that they can fire their doctor who works. For yeah. The fear combined with the pressure. That's, right. Yeah. And, you know, and their friends were saying, oh, well, I had an emergency C-section because the baby, you know, they said the baby was really big and it was going to get stuck. So then they just scheduled a C-section for me. And, you know, thank God I was at the hospital. And so there are all these, there are all these things feeding the fear monster, right? And so, um, you know, typically after classes and working with people one-on-one, -on -one, I just point them to a lot of resources where they start to kind of pull back the veil on what is reality and what is this fear-based illusion. And um, a lot of women typically end up meeting with a midwife or reading a book that changes their perspective and they start making more informed decisions about themselves. And then once they step into a different model of care, they realize what they were going through was a lot of gaslighting and abuse. Mm. Yeah. So it's this really beautiful awakening that women can go through. And it's not to say that every OB is you know, some kind of monster. About certain women with high risk, actual high risk issues like severe diabetes, obesity, 
um, those kinds of things that would really make having the long marathon of a home birth very difficult and probably dangerous for them. Mm. Um, but yeah, the whole model at the hospital and what I've seen is it's, it's, it's really quite satanic actually. Um, the way that women are placed on these tables, blood is drawn, things are put into their body, and then subsequently the same thing happens with the baby, right? There's like multiple people standing in front of them, multiple vials of blood are being drawn, they're being sent to labs for testing, they're being, being injected with different types of substances like the hepatitis B vaccine, the vitamin K vaccine. Um, they're being circumcised sometimes without consent from the parents because there's all this hospital protocol that goes into what happens when you have a baby and a lot of women don't even know that they can choose to decline those medical procedures. Um, and so then at the end of it, you know, you, you birth your baby, you don't see your baby for a few hours, they come back and they've already been injected with substances, they've already had their blood drawn. Their foreskin has already been removed. They've already been washed with antibacterial soap, uh, removing all of the beneficial bacteria that exists on this microbiome. Um, and then the baby is having a difficult time breastfeeding and latching because it's in shock. It's like mm -hmm. physical, psychological, and spiritual shock, right? Its cortisol levels have gone through the roof from what it's just experienced. And then women go into this kind of downward spiral often of, I can't breastfeed, my body's failing me, what happened, you know, um, and it's really, it's really quite traumatic. Yeah, definitely. A couple of things that um, I'd like to go into a little more detail about. Um, one is circumcision. So for, for males, this is a big psychological thing that affects men throughout most of their lives, and especially men who don't really do that um, internal, like kind of trauma, emotional work. Uh, it shows through many things throughout their entire lives for most men. So where we come across this um, toxic masculinity or men thinking that, you know, like getting laid is a sign of like manliness or like, you know, attracting something is like a sign of manliness or disrespecting women or needing to prove themselves like there's something missing, this subconscious thing that something was taken from them immediately after they were born so that now that they have something to prove. So they feel like they can fill that void um, is, is deeply related to the circumcision. And it's, it's an, it's a physical trauma. Like imagine, imagine being a baby. Like I, I love to think of it from the baby's perspective, like being in a hospital where you come out of the, the nice sheltered, warm womb with the music of your mom's heartbeat and that swishing sound. And you come out and it's freezing cold in the hospital in the air conditioning and there's artificial light beaming you in your face and all over your skin. And then, you know, they smack your feet and make you cry and they make you feel like earth isn't safe. And they cut the cord early and they separate you from your mom and they stab you with a bunch of stuff. And then if you're a male, they, they cut your dick. It's hard. And this is all within a couple of hours of being born. This is like serious, insane trauma. And you know, a lot of blame is placed on men for the way that they act and the way that they are, you know, when it involves, you know, sexuality and certain things like, you know, with the hypersexuality and the way that they act. And a lot of it is rooted in trauma. And a lot of them are just like really hurt little boys that never got to really face their trauma and realize like why they were hurt. And when you deny that you were hurt, 
then you hurt other people because you're denying that you're hurting them because you're denying that you yourself are hurt. So this is something that I feel like really affects men throughout most of their lives. And I've had a lot of men throughout the, the, my programs, throughout teaching that have had some pretty incredible experiences. I've actually gone back and remembered like as, as you fast and you detox your body, certain memories come up. I call this like intellectual vomit and emotions come up, which I call emotional vomit. You, you like taste it on the way back up. So what happened with me was actually like super interesting. I, I get memories a lot, especially like now that I'm on the liquid life, like a lot of things from my childhood and from like being younger, like resurface, like small little random memories. But one that I remembered specifically that was really weird. Um, I had a dream one night um, about my circumcision and I was in the room and like, I could see my dad outside the door through the glass, like freaking out crying. And my grandma like with, with her hand on his shoulder, whatever. And then like a couple weeks later, I was talking to my dad about it. And I, I remember the dream in the morning, but I kind of like forgot about it, like whatever. And then my dad was telling me the story and was saying, like I was talking to him about circumcision and how like it's fucked up. And he was telling me the story about how he was like freaking out when it was happening to me. And he was like, it's right. Like they told me it's, we need to do it because it's sanitary and whatever. But like, he didn't like the idea of it. And he heard me crying and he couldn't do anything about it. And that like my grandma was comforting him during the time. And I was like, bro, are you serious? I was like, I literally had a dream of that. Like I literally like remembered it. And like, it helped me like kind of move past it and like face it and like realize that like, what happened so that I can be like, come to terms with it and move on from it. And I've had a couple of clients that have, that have remembered it. Some even during breathwork sessions, not even in dreams where like I guide them through, I do like two hour, like emotional trauma release sessions. So like one-on-ones. So some people in those have told me like, I literally like remembered circumcision or like, I remembered like breaking my leg when I was five years old or something. Mm-hmm. And it's crazy how these traumas translate into adulthood when they're not, when, when you don't give them attention or you don't create space to allow them to be released. Otherwise they're just stored in you and they get triggered at random moments. Yeah. And you'll never make the connection. It'll just be like, you'll never understand why this is happening unless you go back to that root right? Exactly. So many children, you know, these male babies, they come out knowing the mother, right? And they're in this place of trust. They absolutely trust her. And they're taken away. And they're in bliss, right? They're, they're They've been in this place of bliss, and they're taken away. And pain and harm is done to the area of their body which should only ever feel bliss right Mm -hmm. penis should only ever feel pleasure and this so there's this intersection of abuse and pain and pleasure and violence Mm -hmm. and the trust between the mother and the baby at that point is broken you were supposed to keep me safe and you didn't. <laughs> you allowed someone to take me away and cause severe harm to me, right? And that's what is imprinted. Whether it's conscious or not, that's what's imprinted spiritually in the, in the animal body, right? So these somatic experiences are stored. Traumatic events can happen or something that's considered a traumatic event can happen and if it's stored in the body and it never gets resolved, that's when it becomes a trauma, right? Like my daughter falls outside playing, she hits her face, she you know opens her forehead. And the way that that is dealt with and the way that that's resolved 
and process for her can either make that a traumatic event or simply an event, right? A learning experience. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's, you know, um, I think it's wonderful that you do that work with men, you know, that, that they are given the opportunity for that to come up and even rewrite their story, right? Because when men have this awakening about what happened to them during the circumcision and they realize, I didn't make that choice for myself. Like I wanted to make that choice. <laughs> Why did someone make that choice for me? Um, you know, they have to remember their parents were doing the best they could with the information they had. Their parents were under a lot of pressure from the medical industrial complex, which is highly influential and they're professional brainwashers. So before, like they had even less information than we have, at least we have a decent amount of information now and ignorance is a choice now pretty much, but like a generation ago or two generations ago, there was no information. You couldn't just like go on Instagram and find like a doula who knows what she's talking about. You know, you had no one to, to turn to for information about this stuff. At this point, you, there's no excuse. Um, I think like you're right at that point, uh, having compassion for the people that created that unsafe space for you, which we have to have compassion, but then we also have to go and say, how am I going to heal this? Oh, I'm going to educate other men about this. I'm going to spread this message. That's yeah. incredible healing. I'm going to provide well, I like clarity. I like, I like bringing clarity around um, traumatic experiences. I feel like clarity is really the cure when it comes to that type of stuff. And the, the symbolism I like to use for this is certain things can pull the trigger, like can trigger you emotionally to, you know, from, from original traumas or whatever, but using those triggers to find out what actually loaded the gun in the first place is, is the key. Once you find out what loaded the gun, then you can have more awareness and clarity for when that trigger happens. You know why you're getting triggered, you know what it is, and you know that the feelings are safe to feel and that you can just feel it and not project it and just let it pass and ride the wave until it crashes. Right, yeah, absolutely. Just, you know, and just so it's clear, so many of the decisions that we make about our birth and about our baby, right? Like so many people say, I wish I would have known 30 years ago, or I wish I would have known for my first baby, I'm going to do it. You know, it's all fear-based. Mm -hmm. People circumcise their children because it's, they're in fear of an infection or that the baby's going to be transmit more STDs when it's an adult, or they're in fear of being judged by their family who believes in, you know, it's, there's so yeah. many reasons that it happens. Yeah. A lot of, pretty much everything that not just hospitals or the pharmaceutical industry in general, but like that the government and that the banks and all the big business operates by getting everyone in fear. So this is just another, another step on that ladder that just it's control based on fear. Absolutely. Oh. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like there was one more thing I wanted to say on this before we move on. Um, newborn procedures we kind of talked about that a little bit yeah i guess we could talk about like stuff during the actual birth like epidurals and and vaccines and stuff like that oh it was the preparation during pregnancy you had asked me about right what we do to prepare or yeah yeah we can go to we can go to that next um well, yeah okay actually yeah we can move on honestly um i think we we covered pretty much everything relating to birth trauma and all that. Well, the, the, the biggest. So oh, wait, I remember now. I'm sorry. 
Um, last, the last thing I wanted to say on this topic was circumcision, um, like later on in life. Now, I'm a big proponent of nudity. Like I am an avid nudist. I go to the beach and I get naked every single day and I do my go-to workouts and I do my drop-ins butt-ass naked on the beach by myself and I crawl a half mile naked every day. I run on the beach naked. I swim naked. I do a lot of things naked. And for me, it still to this day feels weird being naked that I'm circumcised. I'm always worried about something like hitting my dick and my dick not being protected. Like, yeah, like literally like it feels like I was walking on the beach literally yesterday thinking about this because I was thinking about how we're going to do this live. And I was uh, I was thinking like, imagine having like a dick cover, like it's supposed to have a cover on it so that I don't feel weird about the fact that it's out and unprotected. Where like if something hits it, I'm like sensitive, like I'm sitting in the sand and I hope my, my dick doesn't touch the sand because it's going to feel weird. Like and it's like there should be a cover. And you're born with the cover and nature thinks of everything. You're supposed to have it. And it was just taken away for no reason. And then this is like, a you know, it goes with the wearing clothes out of fear of being judged or out of fear of feeling like there's something missing. Like you need to cover yourself and buy things and put, you know, cotton or whatever fabrics over yourself to cover the fact that something was taken from you. Right. Right. Just so. Yeah. I can't imagine having a piece of skin missing that covers my urethra. <laughs> that would just be horrible. Up. I mean, yeah. it's, it's genital mutilation. I often get invited by my clients to go to their baby's brisses and I, I just can't go. I just can't go. Like it's, I, I, and I, I text the midwives and I say, you know, Lord help me. Like <laughs> I got invited to another genital mutilation ceremony. I don't want to go, you know, it's like, I have to find ways to remain supportive as their, as their totem, right. As the supportive person, this pillar in their life and in their journey. And some people, even though I give them education around circumcision, they feel so much pressure from their family. And I've even had husbands of my clients say, I don't want my son not looking like me. Like my son is going to look like me. You know, and I'm like, oh, okay, despite all of this evidence and despite all of these testimonials from grown adults who've, you know, had this trauma, you still would want to put your child through this because of an ego. You know, it's an ego thing. It's just denial of the trauma, too. Like, those men are still traumatized. And that's where they're like, okay, it's like kind of that thing, like, oh, I wasn't hurt. So, like, I'm going to hurt them and deny that they're being hurt because I I'm still denying the fact that I was hurt. Exactly. So, it's the cycle. Yeah. Yeah. And generational trauma just goes down the ladder. And that's one thing that I'm aiming to do here is at least for myself to stop that generational transferring of trauma and to help those, um, especially like in my generation to be the ones to stop this generational trauma and to stop projecting stuff onto our kids. You know, yeah. things happened to us that we couldn't control that our parents didn't know any better about, but now we can know better. And we can decide not to make the same, I mean, you could say they're mistakes, but I feel like there really are no mistakes. It's all, it's all in divine timing and everything is perfect. Yeah, everything. it's all divine. It's all absolutely divine. And I think birth and pregnancy are an amazing opportunity to confront a lot of these patterns, right? It's an opportunity to go within and a lot of women do. And sometimes they don't go through it until they're actually in labor. Because when you're in labor, if you try to hold on to the control and keeping up the facade, it's mm. not going to work, right? So when women start to surrender from this deep primordial place, things come up. Women have 
spoken certain things that they haven't said in years or secrets that nobody knew and they've never shared because it's the body becomes so open, right? All the channels are open and whatever is being suppressed can come out, right? Mommy issues, daddy issues, whatever it is, I've seen it all come out. So yeah. pregnancy is like a real experience. And it's, yeah, I've heard it's very psychedelic when when the woman is healthy. It's basically like a huge like trip, like kind of almost like an ayahuasca type experience. Um, and the breathing, the breathing, it's like the chemicals that get released, like kind of auto correct the breathing. And then you're breathing and you're getting plaque loose and different things that are stored start to resurface. It's pretty much like kind of it's emotional vomit, pretty much like right. this thing that, that people experience with like a couple hour long breath sessions, like with childbirth. It's that that release. Yeah. And so, and I have, I've said this to a few people, but I don't think there's enough around this yet that a lot of women that go through postpartum depression, right? This is a whole other subject and a whole other podcast episode, but so much comes up in birth and then it is not processed. There's no integration after the birth. And so women go into postpartum depression and then they just go to a specialist and they say, oh, well, we're going to put you on meds. Uh, because you know this is this is a genetic disorder and you know they go into this all this bullshit and really it's that the woman needs integration mm. right because there is a lot of emotional vomit that comes up and there's no support there's no community there's no integration and so they go to specialists and no even awareness or clarity around it right just, just feelings and no explanation and just like no support yeah i could totally see how that would throw someone out, out of balance completely. Right. Yeah. Okay. So let's, let's move on a little bit. That was phenomenal. I'm glad that we, uh, that we tapped into all that. So let's move on to some of the good things. <laughs> um, some of the things that you, that you do recommend and there's things that I want to ask you about. Um, I guess we can try to keep it chronologically, um, in order just for, for everyone listening to kind of not get confused. So let's start with pre-pregnancy. Is there anything specific that you would recommend pre-pregnancy? Now, personally, like if I was to recommend something to someone who is considering getting pregnant, I definitely recommend for the male to hold a seed so that the seed could be mature for at least 90 days beforehand. And that, um, the mother and the father both do some sort of detox prior to even trying to get pregnant. It, I, the way that I see it, it really should be like one shot, like the man ejaculates one time, you know, it's going to work. It works. Um, not really like, you know, I, trying is dying to just continually have sex over and over again, like for weeks or months to try to have sex. Um, I feel like is it's in a way like a suicidal approach for the male to just continue to spill seed over and over and over again in the hopes that it'll work instead of just being in alignment and, retaining the seed and knowing that the seed is strong and electrical and powerful to the point where it, it works in the first time where, where both the male and the female are completely clean and their bodies are working efficiently before they even get pregnant. Mm -hmm. so would you feel like that, that is in alignment with your perspective or are there, is there anything you would want to add to that? Absolutely. Um, I think that that on a physical level, I think that that's super important. I think that going into ejaculation retention and understanding the power of semen is really crucial. Um, I think women focus a lot on themselves and they think that men are just kind of providing this service, right? That's kind of how we look at it. And we think it falls all on the woman to be healthy, to be in this state of homeostasis, but it really does fall on the male as well. 
um, you know, to detox from any kind of, you know, pharmaceuticals that they're on, right? Like a lot of men are on Propecia, for example, right? And then they're trying to conceive when they're on this medication. Um, and we don't know how all of these medications have long-term effects on the development of the fetus, right? We can take a lot of guesses um, and deduce from studies that are done on animals. Um, so we definitely don't wanna be on any kind of pharmaceutical. We wanna look at whatever we're taking in on a daily basis, go through a major detox. But the other huge component of this is the spiritual health of the union between the two people and their spiritual health individually, right? So a lot of women, um, I practice Reiki as well, and a lot of women come to me in their preconception phase and you know, they're like, I'm doing all the right things, I'm eating all the right things, I'm active, this, that, you know, and they look great and they seem great, but there is a huge block in the heart chakra, right? And then the heart chakra is completely connected to the uterus and to reproduction. And so if this is closed, this is closed for business as well. And so women will say, yeah, I really wanna get pregnant. I don't know what's going on. And when we start to dig in a little deeper, there might be some sexual trauma there for her. She really doesn't want anything coming out of her vagina, right? She doesn't actually want that. She has not gone to that place yet. However, she's in the process of conception and doing everything she can to conceive. So there can't be any duality. In preconception, there can't be any duality. You have to be aligned with this um, step that you're taking and that requires us to really go back and see what could be blocking us, right? What are, what are the roadblocks that are existing within me and within us as a couple? So that's definitely something I invite people to look into apart from the physical preparation. Um, and as far as diet goes, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's tricky because I, I actually um, look a lot at the blood type diet. Um, I don't know if you're familiar. <laughs> You've heard of it. Um, you know, I don't really go too deep into diet with people because, you know, I get a lot of plant-based people. I get a lot of people who are doing Weston Price, which is primarily animal fat, no carbs, no refined sugars, just animal fat, like hunter-gatherer style so I get people doing all kinds of things. Um, and so I just try to support them in whatever journey they're on because to try to make a huge dietary shift when you're at this point of conception, um, you know, the body can go through a big detox in that process of shifting diet. And that's not something that I'm really equipped to hold space for. So I have basics for what should be removed and what should be added. Um, as far as brain development goes for the child. Um, but I, I don't go too deep into, you know, what is best to do as an individual lifelong. I really just go focused in on what we know to be best for the baby's development in utero. Nice. Okay. Yeah. I could totally see that as far as um, your job to not like, you know, to get somebody to completely change diets before, you know, is, is a lot for people because I feel like either way you already have to hold a lot of space for people to, you know, do a lot of other things relating to the birth and to be the nutritionist and the doula at the same time is that's a lot of energy, a lot of energy to give on your part. Of energy and responsibility. And I'm not here to convince Not everyone, some people want to have a baby without having to change their whole life. Yeah. And I will tell them like these certain things you're doing, I, I, they're toxic and that's just the bottom line. Um, but if you want to go into shifting them, I might refer them out to someone, you know, like if somebody comes to me and they're like, 
on 801010, right? I'm like, okay, I don't have any, any expertise in this area. Um, and so I would refer them to someone who does nutrition, especially in that area and see if they can, and maybe, and maybe collaborate with their nutritionist on what I know to be best for fetal development. Um, yeah. Okay, nice. So yeah, that pretty much sums it up for preparation. Yeah, I would just say in general, from my perspective, just do the healing, like do as much healing as you can before you try to have a baby. Like once you get, once the pregnancy is, is underway, um, everything that you do affects the baby. So all of that stress of, of healing that emotion or healing that physical stuff, losing weight, like that's all kind of stuff that you should do before you even think about getting pregnant. Like you want to be completely in a space where you're comfortable with yourself before you even think about bringing another human through you. Yeah. Becoming pregnant and having a child is so confronting to everything that we grew up with. Any kind of childhood experience that we had is going to come right back in like a mirror and it's going to be in front of you every day. And you can either choose to stay unconscious and ignore it because it's painful or you don't want to look at it, or you can heal it and embrace it when your child comes, right? And you're raising your child and if you don't have the opportunity to heal because you didn't plan the pregnancy and here you are, that's amazing too. And you'll see that as you're raising your child, there are so many opportunities where you're engaging with your child and you hear the voice of your mother coming through your own mouth. Mm. And you're like, is this me speaking or is this my mother speaking or is this my experience with my mother speaking? And it's a beautiful opportunity to rework that. Like to revisit those feelings and those thoughts and to kind of gain awareness from the other perspective. Totally. These children are these amazing teachers that just come in. And before we know it, they're gone, right? They move on with their own lives. So if we didn't take that opportunity to heal before we got pregnant, and then we didn't take it to heal when we were raising our child or in the pregnancy, then it's, it's so difficult to get that back. You know, um, pregnancy goes by very quickly. So I highly recommend doing a lot of preparation, emotional healing. Um, I really like imago work. You know, if you're working with your, with your partner and you really want to heal any areas, you want to like understand how you can step into your divine feminine and he can step into this like sacred masculine space. Like imago work is really beautiful for that. You can do that together um, as a partnership. And if you're alone doing this on your own, you can do imago work with yourself um, and really tap into that divine feminine and, and come from a place of power and balance, you know, in the pregnancy. Yeah, I would also like to add, um, I, I like that you mentioned if you, if you already got pregnant and you didn't have time to heal, you didn't like it was unplanned or something where you're already pregnant, I would say just take it slow. There's no need to like do like to force like a huge fast detox because that's going to affect the baby too. Um, and to keep in mind that the baby is literally growing from your blood and from your urine and which is your blood, but everything that you detox has to go out through the blood. So when you heal plaque from your organs, when you, when you're getting plaque off the organs or, or stuff out of your connective tissue or any kind of like detox, wherever it is in the body, it has to go through the blood to then get eliminated by the lungs, the liver and the colon or the skin. And sometimes when there's a lot of toxins at once being detoxed, it will still go into the urine, which the baby is floating in. So you're basically, you know, 
by detoxing, you're like detoxing it into the baby if you're overdoing it. Now, the urine is like the backup, backup, backup detox. It's not really designed for detox, the urine. It's really just, it's a blood filtering system when the body is working efficiently. The liver actually cleans the waste out of the blood. That waste goes to the colon to get excreted. And then that leftover clean blood is what goes to the kidneys and bladder with the job of reabsorbing that back into the blood. So it's basically a system, a closed loop system where the body is cleaning the blood and then reabsorbing it and cleaning it and reabsorbing it and cleaning it. So the urine is not actually meant to be waste. However, if there's so much waste, think of the liver like a, like a strainer. Sometimes if there's a ridiculous amount of pulp in your juice, some of the pulp will still get through the strainer. So if you're overdoing the detox too fast, you will still end up with some waste in the urine, which amniotic fluid is mostly urine, if not 100% urine. It, the body will give that to the baby. Like your, your fetus is growing in amniotic fluid. It's floating in your urine, basically. Its entire body is breathing and floating in your urine. And that's pretty much what forms your whole body is your mother's urine. And then eventually, you know, it's, there's, I forget what the exact time frame is, but there is, there comes a time where it's now the baby's urine as well that is getting looped. Yeah. Yeah. The last few weeks of the, of the pregnancy. Um, and I also would not recommend um, doing any kind of major detox when you're breastfeeding right after. Yep. yep same thing. Cause the breast milk is basically, it, it's a blood derivative like urine as well. Exactly. Exactly. And I think it's, you know, something that I do notice a lot with my clients is, you know, after a few weeks of breastfeeding, it's going really well. They finally got to a place where they could breastfeed because it's a supply and demand system. And then they start going back to pre baby world lifestyle. They go into detoxes. They lose a lot of body fat really quickly and the, the breast milk disappears. Mm. So the body loads on body fat during the pregnancy naturally. I gained 50 pounds and you know during my pregnancy most of it was amniotic fluid, uh, my blood volume doubling and the baby and the placenta but whatever I did put on anywhere else in my body is storage for hormones to produce that breast milk. So whatever we, 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 we get on during the pregnancy I recommend that we don't try to burn that off unless we want to stop breastfeeding. It, it's going to go hand in hand. After about six months, I got really thin and I was still breastfeeding really well. I breastfed for five years and I basically kept that up by having the supply and demand system constantly. So once your body is really established in that rhythm of breastfeeding, and I usually say it's after about six months, then you can start kind of going back into a space of removing the weight. But that's if you're consistently breastfeeding. My daughter was consistently breastfeeding, which is why I had the breast milk for so long. Hmm. But yeah. doing it too soon is, can be pretty detrimental. And then you have to start supplementing with toxins, right? Formula. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I'm a big proponent for breastfeeding for at least five years um, after birth. And a question that I get a lot from women is, can I fast while I'm pregnant? And can I fast while I'm breastfeeding? And... My answer is for the most part, yes. However, um, it's not like a universal yes. So like if you've never fasted before and you've never done a solid food vacation before, I wouldn't recommend doing it for the reasons that we just talked about. However, if you have been an avid faster since before you got pregnant throughout the pregnancy and after, th there, should, there shouldn't be an issue with, with fasting. And you know, 
we're not designed to eat every day in the first place. So if you want to go a couple of days without eating because you don't feel hungry while you're pregnant or because, you know, you don't feel hungry while you're breastfeeding, that's hundred percent fine. However, the fasting should never be forced, especially while you're pregnant or breastfeeding. You shouldn't fast for the sake of fasting because you want to detox or because you think you need to fast. It's don't force anything in the process. Like if you feel called to fast, if you feel like you wake up one day and you're like, I don't feel like eating you, you make yourself a smoothie or you make yourself, you cut up some fruit and you're like, I, I don't even want this. Like, I, I don't even feel like eating or chewing right now. Then don't eat. Don't feel like you need to eat and don't feel like you need to fast. Just go with your intuition. Like we said, go with your intuition about pretty much everything. Yeah. And you know, when women are breastfeeding, every day without even getting off, they could sit on the couch for 24 hours that whole day, they're going to burn 800 calories, simply producing breast milk and breastfeeding. So if you find some kind of a balance, you know, I, I know a lot of people who do intermittent fasting, or they're doing like a 12 hour or 16 hour, I don't know very much about fasting at all. Um, but what I've seen with my clients that have done that postpartum during breastfeeding is they their blood sugar really drops. And I don't know if it's because they weren't fasting throughout their pregnancy and then they start fasting postpartum, <laughs> but they start having major issues with blood sugar. Um, and I think it's like you're saying, unless this is something that you have a lot of experience with before becoming pregnant, I wouldn't start tapping into it when you're in this more precarious place where your body is giving so much. <laughs> you're giving more to your child breast while you're breastfeeding than you are during the pregnancy. Yeah, it's just not the time to get started with fasting when you're exactly. breastfeeding or pregnant. Definitely not. Um, that being said, though, you can be gentle. Like if you want to do like a one day water fast or something, or if you want to do like, one, like, like a weekend, like go on juice for the weekend, like you can totally do little things like that. When I'm more so referring to like something longer, like you definitely don't want to do like a 30 day fast if you've never fasted right. while you're breastfeeding or while you're pregnant. Right, right. The little yeah. ones can't really go wrong with a one day fast or like if you want to do like OMAD on fruit or intermittent fast with just fruit or do smoothies for a week, none of that will really kill you. I did that a lot um, during pregnancy and breastfeeding. I would do long weekends of just liquids and that was really helpful for me because I mean, anyway, it's a whole other thing, but yeah. It's your time. You don't have to process as much. It's just less dense food. It's at least the fruits are like highly electrical compared to anything else. Um, I mean, depending on where you get your foods, but still, even if you put fruit from the grocery store out in the sun, it's at least collecting some electricity compared to like eating bread or something. Right. Right. Very dead. Right. Like solid beer, <laughs> straight alcohol. Um, so yeah, that's an interesting topic as well. Um, breastfeeding. So we kind of just talked about it a little bit, but it, it was a topic that I wrote down that I definitely wanted to, to go into some detail about. So there's a couple of things that I, I want to add about breastfeeding and then kind of uh, open, leave the space open for you to add anything else about breastfeeding as well. Something I learned um, about breastfeeding specifically is that um, the actual act of breastfeeding for the baby, like the sucking on the nipple, prepares the baby to have specific tongue and throat posture and build muscles that allow for better nasal breathing. So a lot of babies, including myself, that never got best breastfed ever. Like I, I just got baby formula from birth, which is horrible, but my mom didn't know any better. And um, the tongue posture and the, the strength of the muscles that suction the, the tongue to the roof of the mouth and open the throat for nasal breathing um, are just 
subsequently weaker. So something for me, when I first got into the breathwork, like I had to really train myself to start breathing through my nose and to strengthen the muscles that do that by training the, the tongue lock and training, opening the throat muscles and breathing through, through the nose a lot extra and taping my mouth when I go to bed and things like that. Like for the first pretty much like year of learning breathwork, I had to really train myself to transition to the nose breathing. And this is something that goes all the way back to not breastfeeding for most people. And a lot of people who weren't breastfed, you'll notice that they have the same um, facial structures that align with mouth breathing as well. So like no, nobody's inherently ugly. A lot of the facial features that we associate with ugliness are actually like dystrophy. So your jaw is supposed to be defined. Your nose is supposed to be straight. Your chin is supposed to have definition. It's not supposed to go in. Your head is supposed to have the proper posture. It's not supposed to hunch forward. These are all symptoms of mouth breathing. And they are all, which is a symptom of not being breastfed and not training those muscles through sucking on the nipple as a baby. Right. Yeah. And babies who bottle feed primarily have way more ear infections than babies who breastfeed. So that's what we see a lot of. So the mechanics are different, right? Just like you explained. And when you're breastfeeding, you're also working the eustachian tube, which is behind the ear. Mm -hmm. And so that's when that's not getting worked, that's where we're seeing a lot of ear infections with bottle fed babies. And this includes breast milk in a bottle. It's the actual artificial nipple that is the issue, apart from formula being heavily, highly toxic. It's the actual artificial nipple, right? So pacifiers. So that's another thing that, that they're really popular. People think, oh, I have to get a pacifier for my baby. When it cries, I have to put a pacifier. So for me, i super anti-pacifiers. I don't recommend them to anyone. I tell my students to take them off the registry or whatever it is. Because what we're doing essentially when the baby is trying to communicate is we're putting a plug and saying, shut up, I'm not interested in dealing with this. That's essentially the message we're giving to the child. So when a baby cries, they're either hungry, they have a wet diaper, they're tired, or they need physical touch and affection. Communicating something, definitely. Communicating something. They just, they, they don't have words, they don't have other ways of communicating, so they cry. And a lot of people don't, can't handle what it is to be disturbed every 20 minutes. Right. Yeah. I mean, if you're not, if you're not willing or prepared for that, like why are you having a baby? You got like, you know, it's, exactly. it's your responsibility when you have a child to care for it in the way that it needs. And yeah, I, I want to emphasize when you said physical touch, um, like the actual act of being with the mother during the breastfeeding is, is key as well. And it's something with um, like the electricity like there's nothing electrical about a plastic or rubber or whatever the, the artificial nipples of the bottles are. It's, it's not a physical connection to the organism that is your mother. Um, and it's the same kind of deal. Like if you're getting a massage from a massage gun, it's not the same as getting a massage from a real person because you're not getting the electricity from that person into you the same way that the baby is just getting the milk without the electrical touch of the mother, without the communication, without the energetic communication of the mother. And the actual saliva of the baby being on the mother's nipple actually communicates with the mother to synthesize certain nutrients for that the baby needs. So it's, it's a communication system. And by adding an artificial bottle as a middleman, you're breaking that communication. It's like telephone, you know, the, the bottle can't communicate what the baby is communicating back to the mom and vice versa. Absolutely. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. The, the Montgomery glands here in the nipple is what absorbs 
the baby's saliva and then the control center right gets all the messages of what the baby needs specifically that day and the milk we produce in the morning is different than the milk we produce at night and so people are pumping milk storing it freezing it whatever then warming it up killing all the nutrients in the milk and then they're giving baby nighttime milk during the day they have no idea and so yeah. the baby's awake all night because nighttime milk has melatonin and tryptophan in it but then we're giving the baby the milk from the day that has more adrenaline and cortisol in it. And so the baby's like wired at night. We have no idea. So it's like if we allow the body to just do what it needs to do and not break the communication, then the baby is going to transition into infancy and then into toddlerhood and then into life just more easily, right? People get so concerned, you know, I need this. What do I need? I need this contraption. I need this swing. I need all these things. You don't need anything. You need some cloth diapers and breast milk. You are everything that you need. Exactly. (laughs) Right. And so, you know, we can really simplify it or we can really complicate it. And it's a choice. Yeah, Um, for sure. And the more that you, the more that you try to look outside yourself for things, the more complicated it becomes. Like if you don't try to be the, or you try to not be the everything that your child needs. Now you need all this other shit. You need pacifiers, you need bottles, you need pumps, you need all this other stuff instead of just being the only thing that you need for your baby. And even like when it comes to cribs and beds and, and things of that nature, walkers, all those things are unnatural. Like your baby should be sleeping on the floor with you, like next to you on the floor. And the baby should be crawling on the floor, shouldn't be stuck in a crib in a soft surface where its spine is already getting misaligned and not being supported. And the baby can't crawl. Like really the way I see it, babies should be kind of free to do whatever they want. And as a parent, you, you're like that physical, I was just talking about this in my last podcast, um, Taylor with Taylor, Bud. he was just talking about his perspective on this, which really resonated with me that you're basically just the physical boundary, you know? you stop them from crawling off the cliff or from grabbing a knife. But other than that, you kind of let them do whatever and you learn from them. You, you can observe them. You can see, wow, this is how you're supposed to breathe. This is how you're supposed to move because they know better than me because they're not conditioned. No, they're coming in perfectly and they have all the instinct. It's very clear for them. And if we watch them, we can learn so much. And, you know, the baby cages, I call them baby cages, you know, those little play pens and all the things and the the Bluetooth thing that vibrates when the baby moves, like all that stuff is just a racket. And it really, what it does is that it dulls the woman's intuition. It perpetuates the story that she is broken and that she is not enough and she needs these things. And unfortunately, this is, you know, a whole other side of this is that women are like, well, how am I supposed to work? How am I supposed to keep my life? How am I supposed to keep my social calendar if I have this child? I need help. I can't do it all, right? And so this comes into this, this greater issue of what is, what is the community that you have? What is the agreement and the partnership that you have? The, the father really does not have a biological purpose in the baby's life those first few years right? So the the mother is really who is keeping the baby alive, nourishing the baby, the father or the partner is supposed to be going out making that to make that possible for the mother. Yeah. Once the baby is ready to go out and explore the world, that's when the father comes in to show them how to be in the world, right? That's really how it has been for thousands of years. I feel like the women feel that too. Like when you have a baby, you, you intuitively feel like you should be with your child at all times. 
Like my mom quit her job when I was born and didn't get a job again for five years. Like she completely like stayed home with me and only like nothing mattered but me. And then my brother came two years later and my sister five years later. And then she ended up actually buying a preschool. And then my brother and sister ended up going to the preschool with her so she could still be with them. But yeah, I mean, even when it comes to sleeping, like the baby shouldn't be sleeping in another room. Like baby should be sleeping with the mother every single night, like every day. And people that, that takes away the need for the baby monitor to listen for the baby crying and Bluetooth in a room with a newborn baby is just a horrible idea. Like I wouldn't keep the Wi-Fi on in the house. I wouldn't put lights on at night. Like it's, there's so many things that, that people don't realize are so detrimental to the baby's well-being. Babies and, also learn to regulate breathing by co-sleeping with their mother and their parent. Hmm. That's how they naturally start to regulate breathing is through sensing when the mother moves and, be, and getting onto her rhythm. So if you really want to get your baby to sleep, right, rather than sleep training them, just co-sleep. Hmm. Yeah, just keep next to you and go to sleep. Yeah, you know, when the lights go, when the lights go down, they'll get, they'll get the cue. They understand this is the time we go to bed. When the, when the sun comes up, they understand this is the time we're all waking up. They will assume a natural rhythm if they're given the opportunity. And that's what it, that's the other thing about artificial lighting, about TVs, all those things. Like, how are you expecting the baby to get onto a natural rhythm and cycle of sleep when we're not on that cycle or rhythm, right? Yeah. So. Yeah. And something with like leaving the TV on for your kid overnight, like horrible. Like you're just programming them like right off the bat. And imagine being a baby again, like think of the baby's perspective. Imagine waking up in a crib without your mom in the middle of the night. I would, you're going to cry. You're like, where's mom? Like, what's going on? Why am I alone here? Like, why am I trapped in this little cage? And like, there's nowhere for me to go, nothing for me to do. Like, I'm just going to freak out until somebody hears me. Yeah. And that's when the cortisol levels go through the roof. This affects brain development. It affects their ability to self-soothe, self-regulate. They need co-regulation in the beginning. And mm -hmm. through, through co-regulation is how they eventually learn to develop and harness self-regulation. But this whole idea of crying it out so that my child becomes independent and doesn't rely on me is archaic. We know that Dr. Gerber's method doesn't work. It's really traumatic and really toxic, but we still have the after effects of that school of thought happening, right? Especially in Latin culture, which is half of my family. Uh, there's this idea of, well, the more you pick up the baby, they're gonna become more dependent on you. They're gonna become spoiled. Uh, they call it mamitis. And I get a lot of people who talk about that in my classes. You know, my mom says that I shouldn't, you know, pick up the baby so much. And I'm like, if you want to create an independent, autonomous child, they have to know that their home base is secure. When the home base is not secure, they're not going to take any chances of leaving and going to do independent things. They just won't. So it's going to have the opposite effect. It's really going to come back to bite you in the ass if you do that. Yeah, I feel like there has to be balance between picking them up and letting them do their thing. You know, because you don't want to always take them off the floor. You want to let them crawl and build strength and learn how to move. But then at the same time, you also don't want to never pick them up because they need that secure foundation, like you said, to then go play knowing that their foundation is secure. So yeah, I'll clarify. This is what the rhythm looks like. With, with my daughter, we removed everything in the house that could hurt her. And then I would just let her go around the house from when she was two months old, kind of rolling around and doing her own thing, right? I never... I never picked her up just to hold her and protect her. The house was her space to explore. Mm -hmm. If she were to cry, I would pick her up. Uh, okay. 
Yeah. Okay. No, she never had any chairs, walkers, or anything like that. When the baby communicates, you address it immediately. You pick them up, you address their need. But other than that, they are in a state of exploration. And that's Thanks. it. You know, if they need to eat dirt, which they do, naturally all babies will eat dirt in their infancy. And that is a natural response to building the microbiome. Yeah. Right. But we're like, no, with the sanitizer and all the stuff. And, you know, we that's just. Always microbiome. Like something that I've dealt with a lot is antibiotics. Like my mom gave me a lot of antibiotics growing up. And then I had like really bad, like athlete's foot and, and things related to that. And I had to mess with some like key, coconut water kefir and stuff like that to like work on it. And it's just still something that I, I kind of deal with every now and then. Like I still get flare ups from it. And it's like my microbiome is still repairing from 20 years of, of antibiotics. So it's right. yeah, something like that and hand sanitizer and all that it was only three, four years ago where I stopped showering and tap water, where I stopped using toothpaste, stopped using deodorant, stopped using all these things. But like when you're giving your kids all these things from like day one, it's like you're messing up their microbiome from day one. And a lot of people ask me about um, breastfeeding when it comes to like breatharianism, like how, you know, the, the non-needing food and people are like, well, if we're supposed to be breatharians, then why do we breastfeed? Why do we do these things like eat dirt when we're babies? And it's like, when you're an infant, you are basically downloading self-sustainable software. The mother is programming you to be able to sustain yourself the same way that, you know, um, we just talked about with um, like the heartbeat, being able to self-regulate as far as the circadian rhythm and going to bed on time and being able to soothe yourself. It's the same thing with nourishment. Your mother teaches you how to nourish yourself. It's a reminder. Every nutrient that you're getting from the breast milk, your body is now as an infant recognizing that and say, okay, these are the chemical codes. This is, this is the carbon, hydrogen, oxygen arrangements that we now need to make for ourselves once we stop getting this from mom. And once the baby gets off breast milk, they really don't need to eat, but if they want to eat, they can, you know, that's, that's the way people ask me like, oh, are you just going to starve your kids? No, of course not. My kids are going to make their own decisions. However, you'll find that most kids don't actually really want to eat. So like, if you build autonomy with, if you want the child to build, build autonomy with food, you don't do any spoon feeding. You don't prepare foods. There's no chicken or sweet potato or broccoli that's ever going to be more nutritive than breast milk. There's really nothing more nutritive yeah. than breast milk. And so what you can do is if your baby is grabbing for your hand when you're trying to put something to your mouth, you let your child taste things. But, you know, food before one is just for fun, right? I really, there's really no food that's going to give the baby what it needs. And so the babe, food should be an exploration of senses, of flavor, yep. developing motor skills. Um, but really the baby should be relying on breast milk. In, you know, infants, human infants are not at a stage of any kind of autonomy until they're around 10 months old. So like when a, a you know, a, a horse is born, they can immediately walk and they can do things and they can kind of go out on their own and all they really do is breastfeed. Humans are not really at that stage until they're around 10 months old where they have some sense of autonomy. And so they are completely reliant on you. They should be held in baby carriers when you're out about in the world. They should not be in a stroller messing yeah. up the, the curvature of their spine. They should be in carriers on your back or on your front. When you're home, they should be crawling around and exploring and climbing. Um, when they're sleeping, they should be sleeping with you. 
you know, and when you're ready to introduce food, it should be because the baby initiated interest, not because the American Association of Pediatrics says that it's safe to give them food. Yeah, I don't want to force them to eat when they don't want to eat. Like I, I have pictures like of my parents trying to feed me and me like smacking stuff off the table. Like you should yeah, make a kid eat something. And then that's what babies throw up and like all this stuff, like the body just isn't ready to handle food. If anything, like you said, just let them taste it, let them experience it but they don't have to actually eat like to fill themselves up. It's like, they're not designed for anything other than liquids and air. And then you wonder why people have so many eating disorders. It's like someone was forcing you to eat when you weren't hungry. And then when you were hungry and you asked for it, you were on a feeding schedule. So you were starved, right? Yeah. All, these, all these parents who do like feeding schedules because their baby needs to be on a schedule. They don't, they don't breastfeed on demand and the baby's crying and crying and it wants breast milk that day it decides it wants to eat eight times right and the parents are like no but we're on a four time schedule you know so the baby's crying and it gets a pacifier and then it's like i had a need it wasn't met i don't fucking trust you people and now you're stuffing this thing in my yeah. mouth and I'm to go to sleep like it's just so dark thinking about it now i also feel like that's why like teenagers like seriously resent their parents once they kind of become like once they start to think for themselves they're like okay like i'm actually starting to realize that i don't trust you motherfuckers for shit like <laughs> You know, like you guys have been manipulating me and not been listening to me like my whole life. And that was definitely something that I felt. And I definitely felt that disconnect from my mom a lot. And throughout my young adult life, I've definitely kind of filled that void with the women in my life and definitely realized through doing my breathwork over time and like really diving into my own like self-realization journey that like I definitely have been filling that mom void because I, I slept in a crib and I wasn't breastfed and I was circumcised and I was born in a hospital and I was vaccinated and all these things that like was like made me low-key like not trust my mom and like never feeling like I was heard never feeling like I was understood and that translated into later in life too and then I ended up kind of like outsourcing my feminine my female love and never the same and it never feels like it's the same and then now recently like me and my mom have been reconnecting more because i've been more aware with aware of it and it's been awesome yeah 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 and the thing is when we go for all of these female dynamics right it's like it's never going to heal anything and those female dynamics are always going to feel empty they're going to feel problematic they end you know it's like the longevity is impossible because there's still this gaping hole with the source the female source which is mother yeah. And I feel like it's a miscommunication too, because it's, it's just mis miseducation from the mom, like to realize that your mom didn't want to like do that. To you. didn't want to make you not feel her. didn't want to make you like, feel like you were resented or misunderstood or like, you know, your mom loves you no matter what. So like, it's like, she didn't know any better. So you can't blame her. Yeah, but at the I same time, like you have to acknowledge that you still feel the way that you feel. You, things still happen to you, but you need to come to terms and accept that it's not your mom's fault. Realistically, it's the same, the same thing as like when it comes to diseases or anything, it's really, it's really no one's fault and nothing is really wrong. Everything is the way it's supposed to be. And you come to realizations in divine timing, but like it's society, it's the way that the system is in place. It's the whole indoctrination thing that everyone is misinformed and the informational suppression on platforms and the news misinformation and all of that, like, it's just all misinformation where mothers don't know what the right thing to do is. So they do what they think is best. And then they end up creating this disconnect. And then, you know, their sons or their, their daughters, like they, they run into beef later, like in teenage years and, and stuff like that. And later in life, and there's resentment, a subconscious resentment where they don't even realize why it's happening, 
but then, you know, like families aren't as close. And then this is, in my opinion, a reason why we don't have as many like multi-generational households, why your grandparents don't live in your house because your parents low-key hate them. <laughs> and they stuff them away in a retirement home and it's an assisted living. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's, it's the systematic destruction of the nuclear family as well. And it's all part of the greater agenda, right? And that's all, yeah. all of this information suppression, the medical industrial complex, you know, offering up bodies on the altar, which is what's happening in the hospital, especially with birth, right? If we get them in pregnancy and birth, then they disempower themselves. And then they go into the pediatric system with vaccinations, they're further disempowered. And then the child becomes an adult and the cycle repeats itself. And so what I, what I'm offering, you know, every day is that there are opportunities for people to educate themselves. There's so much information out there. And what I invite people to do is to tap into their intuition, right? What feels right. Let me just open one door today and see where I find myself. Hmm. There are always other options besides what is being presented to you every day, what your family has presented to you, what the mainstream media has presented to you, what your school and your college and your university has presented to you. There are always so much behind it. And I just want to invite everybody, if you're planning to get pregnant or you are pregnant or you're getting ready for your birth, whatever it is, just like seek out second opinions. If you're working with an OB, just talk to a midwife, just have a, a free consultation with her that's 20 minutes and just see how it feels to talk to a different model of care, to speak to someone else. Yeah. Look up free birth, right? See what it, what it means to have an unassisted birth without any medical intervention. And just start to tap into all of the options and then, and then see where you fall in that and what feels good. And it might be right back in the medical industrial complex but at least you knew, and at least you, you really followed some areas of inquiry that you otherwise might've not, you know, looked into. Yeah. I feel like even if you're not a woman, look into this stuff. It's interesting. Like learn about how babies are, are in nature. I would learn about, about the process. Like I'm a 24 year old kid. I have no intention of having a kid anytime soon, but this stuff is interesting. And down the line, when I do have a kid, I'm, I'm going to know this stuff. And I feel like everyone like should be researching things about their bodies and about how the human body is designed to work and how things, you know, are, are designed, whether it's go to movement or whether it's cleaning out your body or getting your health right or fixing your breathing or learning how this process is supposed to go. If you plan on having kids in any point in your life, dive into it. Why not learn as much as you can about everything? Well, all of these men who are also really into like, you know, this, this movement of like removing themselves from the to toxic masculine and moving into this more sacred masculine space. A lot of the work there is understanding how to create a container for the divine feminine. Mm. And if you cannot create that container, then you're kind of just out in this vacuum, right? What is, if you're not, if you can't polarize yourself, you can't polarize her and then there is no relationship. So if you really want to step into that role of masculine, you have to understand this process. You have to understand the process, how it is for her, what it means to play this role in conception and what it means to hold space and create a container for this female as she goes through the process of mothering. And if you are going to advocate for her, it has to be in the pregnancy, through the birth and in the postpartum, right? So I always tell men, you got to finish what you started. And so that's part of this process is how do I advocate for her in any birth setting? Because it's not about the doula. It's not about this. It's not about that. It's really about the space that you can hold for your partner in this process.
Mm. Um, I wanted to go back to Goda because you had asked me and I didn't tell you how I've been tying it to tying it into birth. Yes, let's go into that for sure. <laughs> I, I found GOTA, um, greatest of all time athletes is what the acronym stands for, but it's basically primal movement, um, honoring indigenous physiology, just the natural physiology that, that we, that we're born with. And, um, so many of us experience pain, right? Like we experience knee pain, back pain, whatever it is. And we're like, oh, this is just a byproduct of getting older, right? Like I'm in my thirties, like my knees are supposed to hurt, you know, which is bullshit, obviously. Um, and so people get all these corrective surgeries and it's kind of how it works with, you know, birth. Oh, I'm in my thirties. I have a geriatric pregnancy. I have to have a C-section. You know, we just like subscribe ourselves to these, these terrible ways of moving through life, um, and become completely reliant on the system. So I found Goda, um, through a friend here because I was having pain in my right knee when I was walking and I was like, this is not normal. I did gymnastics for 12 years. I did Bikram yoga for 15 years. I like did all these different types of movement. I've been dancing for a really long time and my knee just started hurting. And so I found a Goda trainer here, John Defeaty, who's an angel. And, um, I realized I just wasn't resting properly. I wasn't sitting properly. Um, I wasn't walking properly. I just simply wasn't moving properly. And so much of that shifted after I had my baby. And so I, when I started healing just through the movement and as I would tap into areas of my body that were stuck, I started having a lot of emotional releases as well. Um, I was going through a separation from my husband at the time when I found Goda. And so there was all of this flowing right and I made this amazing connection that women could birth more easily if they had more awareness of these physiological movements right because I do movement with my clients but I realized oh like the way that I'm sitting every day you know like I'm, I'm talking to clients about this but it makes sense to rest a certain way every day with Goda and so all of it just started overlapping and so now what I've been doing with my clients is um, as part of their preparation and their healing during the pregnancy is getting them into GOTA. And a lot of women who've never done any kind of exercise or movement before and they're pregnant, this is a really gentle entry yeah. in, into, into body awareness, simply body awareness. You know, I get people who are like, yeah, I've been doing this practice forever, or I've been doing yoga for 20 years or whatever. And they're more tuned, tapped into that but I get some people who've never even considered going into a squat and they won't even go into a squat. What they do is they kind of lean forward, grab a table, like roll off the chair and get onto the ground. They have no ability to get into a freestanding squat. So we work a lot on that. And I've seen over time now that I've been doing this with my clients. I'm not a go to coach. I just bring in some principles. Yeah. Their births are so much easier. They can birth in a squatting position and they're pushing time, but that baby is half of what it is with a woman lying on her back. Right. Um, so I'm just I feel like that's the natural posture for birthing. We're supposed to be standing and squat. Well, not we, um, women are supposed to stand and yeah, like kind of squat. I feel like that would be like the most um, supported position, like the most, like the ideal posture blood flow is ideal in that, in that position like back chain dominant standing in kind of like a, like a half squat or even like a full squat. Absolutely. The squat, um, one leg up, right. So, you know, just having one, one leg, one leg kind of in the sense of position and then the other one kind of up. Yeah. Uh, 
standing, you know, holding onto a branch outside and kind of letting your shoulder, your elbows hook into a branch and then having the pelvis able to rotate into figure eights. So all of that capability is possible when you're doing this go to movement throughout the pregnancy and even before pregnancy. Um, because if you don't know your options, you just don't have any. And so what happens in the birth is that we just don't know our options and we end up birthing on our backs and, you know, the, the perineum tears, the labia tears, you know, babies have to get pulled out with forceps because the woman just doesn't have the physiological capacity to actually push her baby out on her own. In that position, especially too, like that front chain dominance, like all this stuff is not in alignment. It's like, there's it's like sleeping on the floor. Like if you're trying to sleep on the floor and you're not like in the fetal position on your side, like with that, with that bow loaded on the right side, it's like, you're not going to be comfortable. Like nothing is going to align. It's the same thing, I guess, with birthing, how like to push those muscles and to actually get something done. If every, if the posture is not right, then something's going to be out of place and then something tears. It's like, if you, if you let your inside ankle bone go low, when, when you're sprinting, then the knee comes in, then the hip comes in, then you mess up your IT band, you can mess up your Achilles, all these things could go wrong, just because the posture is not right. So I guess when you're birthing, it could be the same thing where like, you know, your perineum can tear because your posture is not right. And now there's resistance. And now that's getting pulled. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, imagine defecating lying on your back. Yeah, that's I can't even imagine defecating anymore sitting on the toilet. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Horrible. I haven't done that in so long. Like, I mean, like standing on the toilet in the go to squat, like to go to the bathroom every single time. And that's been, and even before I got into go to, I was always still squatting. My feet were just wider and duck footed. I didn't know yet, but now it's like, now it's even easier. Like I haven't used toilet paper and I don't even know how long. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, the, and everything... All of the design we have in the modern world is just to accommodate the, the, the design before it. Yeah, exactly. Like you only need toothpaste because you eat shit that plaques up your teeth. You only need toilet paper because you eat shit that plaques up your butt and you don't sit, you don't poop in the right position and you get poop stuck and right. all these different things. You only need deodorant because you smell like shit because you eat like shit. So it's right. like all these things. You know, we only need eyeglasses because we, we have plaque in our eyes, all, all different things. Like it's all just compensation. And you most often need C-sections only because you have zero connection to your body and you've done zero physical preparation for the event, right? Because you're living a chair lifestyle, you're living a modern lifestyle and your pelvis is totally closed. Your psoas is totally constricted. Your hamstrings are totally constricted. Your perineum is totally tight and stiff. You've been like drying out the area with soaps for years. You know, it's like everything. Yeah, yeah the soap too, especially and, and tampons and all that. Um, yeah, like if you are still good, we could talk about periods too. Um, yeah. I did want to get into that. Um, yeah, there, so let me see. Okay, so actually everything I wrote down about asking you about Goto, we kind of went over. Um, I wanted to ask you about exercises during pregnancy. I wanted to ask you about the squatting position for giving birth and just squatting in general. And we, we talked to that, we talked about that kind of automatically. So that's good. Um, yeah, Goda has definitely changed a lot for me as well. Um, with my, with my practice, with teaching breath work and stuff, like a lot of the postures align with the breath work, um, you know, like the, the back chain dominance versus front chain dominance thing, like the position when you're, when you're doing breath work, you're supposed to be like, if you are in a seat at the edge of the seat, so it's on the perineum and then the hips are supposed to be back. That back is supposed to be arched and your shoulders are supposed to be right above the hips with the ribs in front. Kind of the same thing as when you're standing with back chain dominance, like 
you're supposed to be like here. So even when you're on the inhale, your shoulders come back and your ribs are still in front and the diaphragm can expand, but the shoulders are still right above the hips. And then when you exhale, the diaphragm comes in and the ribs come forward, but the shoulders are still above the hips and the ribs are still in front. So even for the breath work like that, back chain dominance is accurate. And when you sit, you should still have your inside ankle bones high, weight should still be on your fourth and fifth metatarsals, the knee should still be externally rotating 22.5. All the same stuff is kind of like, you should even feel the bow, the bow loading while you're sitting in the chair. If you are gonna sit in a chair, you should be at the edge of your seat and you should be loading. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do it when I'm driving too. Me too, I actually take, you know, like those go to blocks. Yeah. I, my, the seats in the, in the car that I have right now, um, they slant and it like, it forces you to be like leaning back, like in the slanted chair. So I take the go to block and I put it to make it like flat and I sit on the wood. <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> yeah. 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 And it's so, it's so simple. It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful way to move. And I do a lot of African dance and it's really, really helped the movement that I have in that. It's helped the way that I pick things up, the way that I'm cooking, the way that I'm brushing my teeth and I feel no pain in my body. Yeah. Even like just my relationship with my feet. Yeah. Like I've been an athlete my whole life and I've never had a relationship with my feet and my toes like I did in the last month from working with Gota. It's really profound actually. Like my calves and my feet and my ankles like are stronger and just look more athletic and just feel better than they ever have in my whole life no matter how much sports I played them or how much running I did, like just doing drop-ins and hinges and squats and like just bowing and cornering every day, like really just changes everything really does. Oh, I don't know why this just popped into my head. One more thing about breastfeeding mm -hmm. that I, I saw you post about that I wanted just to bring up um, for everyone listening, the oxytocin release from the baby's hand actually being on the breast while you're breastfeeding. Um, if you want to like kind of explain that a little bit. Yeah. So, um, I mean, it just comes down to human touch really where every time we hug someone for yeah. more than 15 seconds, we're start releasing oxytocin. And so when the baby's breastfeeding, the baby will naturally massage the breast as it's breastfeeding. It's a way of like, it's a way of connecting to the experience, right? And sometimes when they squeeze more milk will squirt out, but also what it does is that it releases more oxytocin in the woman's body, right? And so that helps her produce more breast milk. It helps her bond with the baby and it creates that kind of inseparable bond, right? This- It's like an I, chemical, it's like the love chemical. It's the love chemical, the baby gets it, the mother gets it, and it's this attachment. And it's a really important attachment. And it's really what creates that sensation of like, I will kill anyone who tries to do anything to you, right? It's that animal connection. Um, and so that's missing when we do bottle feeding. And, yeah. and again, if, if, it's, if the mother's releasing oxytocin that's going in her blood and she's feeling it, then that's, you know, the breast milk is a blood derivative. So then that's going into the breast milk for the baby as well. It's a total loop. And then, and the, just to that point, when the baby's born, the baby should go right on the mother's chest immediately after the birth. There is nothing that has to happen that would prevent the baby from leaving the mother's chest unless there was an issue with breathing. Other than that, there is nothing, there's no other reason. And so 
you babies are going to spit up fluid. They do a natural Heimlich when they come out of the vaginal canal. So they're going to spit up whatever's been in the in water. So that only makes sense. Yeah, exactly. They're going to be born purple. They're sometimes they're asleep when they're born and they're going to kind of come to when they go onto the mother's chest, they're going to spit up more fluid. They're going to cry. They're going to clear the lungs and nasal passages. And then they're going to instinctively look for the breast because the woman's breast is also releasing oxytocin from the nipple and the baby's head is also releasing oxytocin. So the mother should smell the baby, lick the baby, kind of like take in the baby. And that's when the process initiates. Instead of washing them in tap water. Yeah, and antibacterial soap and Lord knows what else. So that process has to happen immediately and that's going to release a huge dose of oxytocin. It's going to cause her uterus to contract and it's going to push out the placenta so that the placenta can be born. So there's a really crucial window right after the birth that is one of the most overlooked windows in this whole process, right? The baby's immediately, you know, they show the mother the baby, they say, look, it's a girl, it's a boy, whatever. Then they take the baby away, they take it to the little panda warmer and they start doing all the things. And then, you know, the mother's like- the baby and the mother. Right, right. So yeah, the- squeezing the breast while breastfeeding, touching the breast, uh, the mother smelling the baby, really like diving into that connection during breastfeeding is just so healthy for both of them. Mm. Awesome, beautiful. So a couple more things. I know we already been on here for like almost two hours. A um, couple more, couple more things to go over. Um, inversions. So inversions during pregnancy, I recommend inversions, um, which is going to relate to the next topic with periods. Uh But when it comes to pregnancy, um, what, what are basically like, what are the reasons why, uh, it's important to do inversions while pregnant? So I did inversions every day while I was pregnant. And that's because I had a headstand practice headstands. So I had a headstand practice for years before I got pregnant. I'm a big fan of the headstands myself. Can't lie. Yeah, I wouldn't recommend anyone start inversions after they become pregnant. You simply don't have the core strength or the muscle memory to start that during pregnancy. Maybe if you just got pregnant, you could start. But if you're already like six months pregnant and you suddenly learn about inversions, I wouldn't recommend it. Um, You just, you don't have... What do you think about like an inversion table or like feet up the wall breathing or things like that? An inversion table is great. Yeah, those those are totally fine during pregnancy. There is no reason not to do them. Isn't necessarily harmful. It's more just so like not being able to because you've never learned how to do it, and it's when you're six yeah. months pregnant, it's not the yeah. best to fall over trying to do a headstand. Exactly, and I'm just thinking about freestanding, right? I'm thinking about headstands that I do like without a wall. You know, yeah. I, do, I do shoulder stands, I do headstands, and that's because I have that ability. And so with this huge belly, I could do it. Um, but inversion tables are great. You could even do supported against the wall, um, a a shoulder stand, something like that. I would really work up to it, but really redirecting the blood flow is great. Um, there's, there's no contraindication for the baby at all. Uh, what you might feel later in the pregnancy is a lot of compression on the lungs simply because they're already highly compressed. Then around the like 36th week, the baby starts to drop down a little bit and you start breathing more easily um, because now they're engaging down in the pelvis. 
So that's why you really can't eat a lot in the third trimester. You have a little bit of a difficult time breathing. And so I think having a breathwork practice would be really great to start before you become pregnant. Really get comfortable with that. Um, and learning how to expand the lungs and really take in more oxygen in the third trimester would be great. Um, unfortunately, awesome. most women don't know how to breathe. Um, People don't. I, I recommend the same thing like with the fasting, like don't even think about fasting until you learn how to do the breathing. Like if you don't know how to breathe through your nose and your, your mouth breathing or something all day, like you shouldn't really be fasting. Yeah. You know, it's the breathing is important before you kind of dive into any big um, investment of your body, whether that's fasting or pregnancy or, you know, like anything like learning something like go to like you should learn your breathing if anything like at the same time you're learning go to stuff but like no matter what you do like your breathing should be aligned with everything right. and that's like that's why it's the first pillar for the method of holistic ease is respiration is number one i think it's the most important like primary most important thing you can possibly do and i feel like anyone at any stage can learn the breath work so even if you are going to start doing something beforehand you can learn the breath work while you're doing something or before you're doing something but it definitely is something that should be implemented for literally every single human on earth. But especially like if you're going to bring another human into this world and they're going to be near you and they're going to be learning from your breathing pattern and your heart rate, you should get yours on point before you kind of rub off and misaligned breathing pattern on your child as well. Yeah. And the blood flow is directly correlated to the breath pattern. Like the pressure, the air pressure, the, the contraction and expansion of the diaphragm plays a huge role in the, the air pressure inside the body, which allows for proper blood flow. Breathing through the nose gives you that nitric oxide down to your blood, which relaxes and dilates the blood vessels, which allows for more blood flow and breathing slow, breathing mm -hmm. slow. Yeah, but that's the I coach people through breathing in labor during the birth. Um, you know, what I see is that so many women who haven't done any kind of classes, any kind of training, they start chest breathing, right? And they're breathing through the mouth and it's just really quick. It's like that old Lamaze breathing we used to see in the movies. It's like the, yeah. you know, and women go into C-sections right away because the baby goes into to fetal distress with the heart tones. And, and so, yeah, yeah, you're breathing like you're getting chased by a bear while you're sitting down, while you're standing or sitting down waiting to give birth. You should be in the parasympathetic. You should be breathing slow through your nose. So like, yeah, definitely. If any, if anybody is even pregnant and listening to this, like before you get to that point where you're ready to give birth, at least do like one or two sessions, like do something to, to get kind of some sort of familiarity for deep nasal breathing, get the tongue, learn about the tongue postures, learn about the chin posture and figure out kind of the basics. At least I got free videos on YouTube. Um, for anybody who doesn't even want to spend money and learn, just go on YouTube. There's a um, two playlists. One is called informational videos. That's where you'll find the video about the bandhas, which is all about the postures and the, the muscular contractions on the breath holds. And then there's guided breath works in on the, the playlist called guided breath work and testimonials. And you'll see um, some stuff on there and that's all free. And yeah. then I, yeah, I have some videos with partner partnered relaxation. So it's like if you can combine your your breathing techniques and the partnered relaxation, you won't even need a doula. Like you you won't even need anyone there with you. Just like it's it's all there to completely empower yourself. Yeah, yeah. And there's we're not the only two people that have content out there either. There's thousands 
hundreds of thousands of people that have content out there. There's all different breathwork coaches out there. There's all different, um, you know, people that are out there putting out content. You could go on YouTube and find thousands of videos of how to do different breathworks. I would just say definitely look up the relaxing stuff, parasympathetic, slow breathwork, and do everything through your nose. So even some, some breathwork coaches are out here teaching a lot of fast breathing through the mouth. Um, like Wim Hof, I wouldn't recommend Wim Hof to somebody who's pregnant or, or no, definitely not. during labor. Like that's totally not the type of breathing I'm referring to here. I'm, I'm very specifically talking about slow breathing, just proper diaphragmatic breathing, breathing with your belly, with your diaphragm, nice and slow with your nose, with the right postures, the right shoulder, rib expansion, everything in the right posture. If you can breathe properly, that will be huge, make a huge difference in like the blissfulness of the experience, I feel like with, with labor as well. Like if you can control, like for me, like even with like psychedelics, like I'll compare it to like a psychedelic trip almost. Like if you do a lot, if you take like a, a shit ton of mushrooms and you have no idea how to breathe, it's going to be a lot more intense. And this is why people have like, quote unquote, bad trips. Like your giving labor could be like, kind of like a bad trip if you don't know how to breathe. And this is like, you know, like girls that are breathing like... <sighs> Like you can, like, that's, you, you end up going to have a C-section. Like that's super traumatic. That's a, that's a bad trip. And that's because your breathing wasn't in alignment. If you can handle a bunch of shrooms and breathe slow and control the breath, despite the, the stimulation to your senses, that's seemingly insane. You can really relax and it'll turn from a panicky, fiery mess to a blissful, colorful, fractal experience. Totally. And so much of the pain quote unquote pain that women feel during childbirth and labor is because there is not enough oxygen. The muscles, the muscles in the entire body start to contract because blood flow is restricted and because there's no oxygen. So not only does the mother experience more pain, the baby is also limited in the amount of oxygen they're receiving. So mm -hmm. breath, breath is the foundation of a smooth, blissful, quote, pain-free birth. Yeah. Right? And, and, and just one last point on that, um, pain in birth is not pointless. Every time a mother has a nerve stimulated in the pelvis, for example, a signal is sent to the brain to release more of a certain hormone and that keeps the whole momentum of the birth going. When we medicate and we don't feel those things, labor can stall because the body's confused. It's saying, I no longer feel those sensations in the pelvis. I no longer feel anything pushing down. Is this still happening? And then that's why women end up getting Pitocin to artificially augment the labor. And so these sensations you feel, you want to feel them. You just want to know how to move through them smoothly and manage them so that you're in, you're in bliss and you're in comfort. Yeah. And I did a, uh, a podcast episode on uh, me and me and my friend Devon his, his Instagram is the, at the black airbender. And we talked about how um, a big contributor to a lot of pain for women giving birth is dehydration. So think about anything like flexibility, like your hydration directly correlates to flexibility. So like if you are, you know, super hydrated and you go on a liquid fast for 60 days, touching your toes is going to be a lot easier than if you're eating bread and drinking beer every day. So like the same thing applies to pregnancy. Like the more that you reduce the density of your food. And again, we talked about, you should do this pretty much before you get pregnant. But if you're in alignment with your diet and staying super hydrated, consuming a lot of juice or consuming a lot of, um, this is a topic I want to talk about with you, urine, urine therapy, 
or, um, you know, like eating mostly fruits or, you know, vegetables, like more hydrating foods, then you're going to have a lot more time, uh, a lot easier time giving birth because the whole uterus, everything will be more hydrated. So it'll expand easier. Like take something, for example, let's say, trying to think of something that would be like bendy. Think of like a banana, I guess. Like if you were to take a banana, you can kind of bend it a little bit before it, it'll break. And then if you were to put it in the dehydrator or like cook it or something to the point where it's like a banana chip, the chip would just crack. So it's like the same thing applies to your ligaments, to the uterus, to your vagina when you're, I don't like the word vagina, but when you're, um, <laughs> when you're uh, giving birth, you'll, uh, yeah, it'll, it'll expand easier because it's more wet. It's more hydrated. So it's more malleable, more like water. It has more of an ability to change form and expand and come back. And this is the reason why women have like different issues post-birth where like they don't get their stomach tight again or like certain things. And they're like, I had three kids. That's why I lost my abs. It's like, no, it's because you ate like shit when you were pregnant. That's why you lost your abs. Not because. Well, yeah. And, and, and we don't have a lifestyle after birth where we work the body again. We're supposed to be wearing our babies. We're supposed to be moving. We're supposed to be squatting after birth. We're not supposed to be laid up on the couch and pushing the baby around in the stroller. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, hydration is key. So this whole idea about not eating during labor, I'm like, keep, you know, not consuming any liquids during labor. I just, I'm so big on electrolytes, like basically real coconut water during labor yep. is what I'm providing. Um, we do honey sticks, we do cucumber, like we do all kinds of hydrating foods. Wow. Which is good. Too. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, very important. Yeah. So, um, another thing that I saw you post about that I want to touch on a little bit, which I love that you posted about is over drinking water while you're pregnant, which will deplete you of electrolytes. Now I'm all for hydration and all for the liquid life. However, I don't really recommend drinking water by itself at all. Mm-hmm. So, Electrolytes are minerals, just to clarify for anybody listening that isn't aware. Electrolytes are minerals. So sodium by itself, not salt, but sodium is an electrolyte. Magnesium is an electrolyte. Like just for example, all these minerals are electrolytes. So they carry electrons or, you know, electrical charges throughout the blood to to the body. So you should be consuming things with minerals because you're made of minerals. Anything you're consuming without minerals is depleting you of minerals. And, um, this ties into the urine therapy as well. Think about like what goes in and what comes out, right? If you're taking in plain water by itself, like distilled water, for example, which is, if you are going to drink water, I do recommend distilled water over any other water, but distilled water has nothing in it, but H2O, right? There's no rocks, no metals, but also no organic minerals either. So you're taking in plain water and then what's coming out of you, you're peeing out urine. And what is urine? 102 minerals along a wet carbon chain with elect- electricity, with stem cells, with um, a- antibodies, antioxidants, enzymes, all different things. And if you think about it, like you're taking that water, you're giving it all those minerals, all those stem cells, all that stuff, and then wasting it into the toilet. Is the water feeding you or are you feeding the water? Mm-hmm. You know, you're, you're giving away nutrients and taking in just water and giving away water with nutrients. It's going to deplete you. And it's a it's observable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
I have a question about that. The ammonia content in urine, is that something that is like, like harmful? How does it affect? Like if I, cause my mom used to put urine on my skin in high school. Um, I told you she's a naturopathic doctor. And so she had a colleague who was doing cancer therapy, um, urine therapy for cancer in Tijuana. And so she had talked to him and um, she was always telling me to put urine on my skin. So I would, the first urine, as soon as I would wake up. I didn't know anything about it. I never asked questions. I just always did what she told me. <laughs> um, and so, <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, I, I, I took a synthetic birth control uh, because I was completely ignorant and defiant and thought that that's what I was supposed to be doing because all my friends were doing it and my skin went into a horrible flare up. I basically had full body acne. Yeah, that happened. Uh, acne and the bloating is usually the main two. Oh my God, it became a, I looked like a monster. It was crazy and um, it was so sad. So anyway, the way that after getting off of the hormones, realizing it was horrible, the way that we treated it from the outside was urine, just with, you know, ga like soaking gauze in urine and wrapping it on my face and like wrapping it on my neck. And nice. so that's, and just like letting it sit there. But then I always wondered, well, like, what about the ammonia? Like, is that something that's in urine that's harmful? Like, I don't know very much about it. I didn't really think about urine therapy again until you and I connected. Yeah, so it's definitely not harmful. Like the urine is definitely not harmful in any sense. Um, a, a lot of things that I get questions about are the ammonia content and the urea content. So okay. urea is definitely something that's beneficial and not harmful. It's in your tears, it's in your sweat, it's in your blood, it's in your saliva. Every time that you swallow anything, you're consuming urea. It's basically urine therapy. Um, and yeah, so basically um, the, the ammonia won't harm you. Anything that's in your urine is in higher amounts already in your blood. So the urine comes directly from the blood. And this is like the same concept of people who get like sediment in their urine um, when they're detoxing hard or people that are worried about waste being in the urine and urine itself is not waste, but there can be waste in the urine. That's not something that I'm necessarily denying in any sense. However, no matter how much waste is in your urine, there is less of it in your urine than there is in your blood. So by looping it back in, like it's worse to lose the urine than it is to put back in the waste. Gotcha. So like, think of it like anytime that you're peeing, you're bleeding because the urine is basically, it's your blood. It's actually a cleaner version of the blood in your veins. It's your body cleans. We talked about this already. The body cleans the blood to get reabsorbed back in. So if your bladder and kidneys are covered with gunk, like with plaque or snot, which most of us have that going on, then we have no choice and we're over drinking. So we're peeing because you know, we're over drinking because we're overeating and we need to compensate with liquids. So we're over peeing and we're just bleeding. You know, you're taking in water, like I said, and you're, you're getting rid of all that nutrients. You're, it's, it's all, you're merging water with your blood and then releasing it. So in order to stop the bleeding, you loop it back in. Mm -hmm. And if there's any waste in it, and you're putting it back in, it's still beneficial because you're still not losing blood. And then the rest of your body is still working to fix it. So it's basically like putting it back in saying, okay, lungs, get this shit out because you're the one who's supposed to be doing this liver, get this shit out because you're the one that's supposed to be doing this. You know, we're still not going to let ourselves bleed into a toilet of tap water so that the pharmaceutical companies can take the urea and put it into fucking products for people's hair and skin. We're going to use it for ourselves and we're going to put it right back into the body because it was made by us for us. And because the strainer didn't catch all the pulp, we're going to put it through the strainer again. Why do you think I tell women to consume their placentas after birth? Because exactly. all these hospitals 
all these hospitals are donating them to stem cell therapy companies and then in return are receiving large amounts of money to build new hospital wings to upgrade their hospitals right there's no there's no sale happening but it's really an indirect sale and yep. so women get amazing benefits from consuming raw placenta right after the birth uh putting the umbilical cord into their mouth you know just a piece of it um, getting all those stem cells and then I dehydrate the placenta and they consume it. You know, I do the raw method. So it's really at like 150 like dehydrated or something. Yeah. Yeah. And then I, I, I pulverize it and then encapsulate it. I create salves from it. I mean, there's just so much benefit to putting that back into the body. Of course. Uh, because if you don't, no one else will. Yeah. Yeah. Everything should be looped. Definitely. Um, yeah, that's awesome. I saw, I was just looking through your page today to like, see what questions I wanted to ask you. And I saw that and I was like, wow, that's, that's dope. That is what's right there. Yeah. So yeah, kind of the same concept with the urine therapy. Um, and I mean, when the baby is floating, it's floating in amniotic fluid, which is pretty much just urine. It's a, it's a it's filtered blood. So it's the same kind of deal. Like your whole body is made of urine, which is blood, you know, which is made of breath. You know, the mother, you convert air into blood and then you convert blood into urine when you clean the waste out from whatever you, whatever else you eat. And then that's, what's literally making your entire baby. So your whole body is made of urine essentially. And that's why, you know, it, it makes perfect sense that the urine is loaded with stem cells because it's the key for regenerating tissue, because that's what the blood does. It generates tissue. So as you, you know, you can use urine to get rid of scars, to heal wounds faster, um, to grow hair back. I've had clients that were completely bald that started growing hair back by massaging aged urine into the scalp. Um, so much, so many different things are capable of being done with the urine. And well, a friend of mine, um, his son just went off, he's a teenager, went off and gave himself the vaccine, the COVID vaccine, and started having really horrible reactions within a few hours after getting the shot. And a friend, a friend of ours in the group chat suggested that he just start dripping urine under his tongue, like a homeopathic, mm -hmm. like every, every few hours. And the symptoms definitely started to subside. I mean, they were still there, but they started to subside with yeah. the urine. She even suggested just drinking the urine, but of course some people couldn't, you know, some people can't handle that at first. It's a mental yeah. game, I think. Um, obviously if I was in any situation where my life was on the line, I would start chugging urine if, you know, even if I didn't know about it, yeah, but um, you're on your deathbed, like <laughs> your I'm not going to wait till I'm on my deathbed. I'm definitely, um, I'm definitely moving into that world because of you. Thanks to you learning it, about it or getting reintroduced to it. It's like the, the way that I see it is like, it really is the ultimate practice of self-love. It's like full acceptance of yourself for what you are and who you are. It's like to, cause it is you, it is the liquid consciousness. It is the blood. So it's like to take in and be like, this is me. I am clean. I can put myself back in myself and fully accept this interaction with myself. It really is like a true act of self-love and to know that you are your own medicine and that everything that you ever had is already, or everything that you ever needed, you already had. Yeah. A powerful realization. And especially when you first actually experience it and start doing it yourself, it, it is so powerful. Yeah, it's so powerful. Um, I, I definitely believe that we can get all that we need from what our body creates and from food that we can grow, right? And so unfortunately, you know, I grow, I grow all my own vegetables or I try to for the most part anyway. I really don't buy anything from the store, but, and my fruit, which because I live in Miami, I can grow all my own fruit. Wow. Um, and, and I eat seasonally, which is great. I just eat whatever I can grow. But um, 
the reason I said that there was a post, right, that I created because so many women are like, I just, they come to me and they're not doing well in their pregnancy, right? They're like, platelets are in terrible levels, like things are just not going well for them and they refuse to take any kind of supplements. And I typically don't believe in supplements, but when your diet is so poor because you're eating garbage, you need, <laughs> like you need the additional mineral content. Yeah. Like we're getting produce that's coming from Ecuador and it's taken six months to get here and it's been sprayed with methane gas so that it doesn't rot. And that's what we're eating. There's nothing in there. Yeah, nothing at all, except for- I typically wouldn't recommend um, supplements, but I, I, I definitely end up doing that. So a lot of my clients, just because their diet is so poor and there's really no way to get any kind of clean source or potent source of minerals. Yeah. They, don't, they don't like coconut water. They don't, they, they might do Gatorade. Like, you know, it's just people come with, you know, and I, and I understand I'm, oh, my, my arms and my heart is open to everyone, but trying to navigate that and offer support when people become really rigid is like, it's yeah. difficult as you know. Definitely. Yeah. Certain people that, you know, when they don't want to give in certain areas, they're like, Oh, but I'm not going to stop doing this, whatever. And it's like, all right, well, you might not get the results you're looking for here, but I'll support you through it. You know what I mean? Here, I'm here. But um, I'm, I'm telling you that you'll be better off if you don't. And for the supplements thing, um, that's kind of like the urine and the breathwork have kind of replaced uh, recommending supplements for me, especially because I view the body as a whole. So like, that's why I call it the Kudo method of holistic ease. I feel like the body is really only designed to process things in its whole form. So like everything that you consume will take from you what it lacks. So consuming an isolated substance, it's not really in its whole form and the body doesn't even really know what to do with it. And it's like an artificial, like dead version of a, of a, of a mineral. It's not really living any longer. It's not, it's not wet. It's not attached to water. It's not attached to carbon. Um, there are some that are better than others, but yeah, in general, like there's no supplement that's better than your urine. It has all 102 minerals. So really the way to compensate deficiencies from my experience is to just stop depleting yourself, like to recycle the urine, to stop pissing away. You know, they don't call it pissing your life away for no reason. Um, you know, you don't want to uh, just deplete yourself and piss out those, those minerals all day and then try to put fake minerals back in. And then also the breath work. Um, I wrote a book called Organic AI, which basically explains in detail how um, this world is essentially a, com a computer simulation and everything runs on binary code, zeros and ones, darkness and lights, just like a computer and how all elements on the periodic table are arrangements of darkness and light and different densities of arrangements of darkness and light. So most of the, most of the minerals, like pretty much every mineral is just, just exactly that. So your body has the ability in the parasympathetic nervous system to write code. So when you're breathing less than one breath per minute, usually when you're sleeping or when you're doing the actual breath work with the proper postures and the bandhas and the nose breathing and you know, the right breath patterns, you are actually writing code. You're creating minerals for the body. And this is one of the concepts of breatharianism, need, not needing external food because you can write the code on yourself. But when we're in the sympathetic nervous system, we're breathing through the mouth, we're breathing fast, you know, we're stuck in fight or flight all day, we're stressed, we're doing whatever, you're just running software, you're not writing code. So you have to be able to tap into that parasympathetic to that code writing, you know, ability, and write the code for yourself. So the combination of the breathwork and the urine therapy really will replace the need for all supplements, but it needs to be consistent. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. So the last thing that I wanted to talk about is periods. Mm -hmm. and 
I got I got 15 minutes left before Brother Bootcamp starts. So we'll we'll keep this one quick. We we talked about this a little bit before we started. So um, pretty much what we said was um, your mother is a what, what was that? doctor and a homeopath. Homeopath. Okay, yeah. So um, you were mentioning how she helps women who lost their period due to malnourishment or well, like anorexia or different things. Um, come back to getting a regular um, consistent period, right? A regular schedule of, of getting periods and how that would, you know, kind of indicate health in some degree. Right. Yeah. So many of the women that come to her have been on synthetic birth control. They have thyroid issues, whatever the case may be. And so after working with whatever's going on, the goal is really to have a regular cycle. And that is a sign that the woman's body has come into balance after being in a state of disease, right? Yes. So I'm so what I you is that that is typically how that's the rubric through which many women look at health is like I'm trying to get to my period. I'm trying to get to a regular cycle because they're coming from such a toxic place. Yeah. And I'm totally in alignment with that in the sense that when you are coming from like a birth control or from somewhere where like you're actually not ovulating or menstruating, then the period is, is a sign that you're at least ovulating. And it's, it's a, uh, it's part of the cycle of getting back to absolute balance, but sometimes, you know, the, the path forward may appear backwards. So like, you know, you're not bleeding, which is actually a good thing because when you're that, you know, when you poison yourself with birth control or you have like issues like that lead you to, to lose your period, lose your ovulation. It's basically just like your body is holding blood. It, your body doesn't want to lose the blood. It doesn't want to lose the egg. It's, it's trying its best to recycle life force to sustain life in the body. So that's more of like an emergency thing. That's like actually kind of a good thing. But then when you restore some level of health and you get the body going again, you're going to menstruate again. And that's a sign that you're getting back to balance, that your reproductive system is actually working again, that your body feels comfortable enough to release where it's not in an emergency deficit position. And then you go take that, you can take that a step further and then really detox the body, really bring the body to a state of ease and cleanliness where that the egg is being recycled and the blood is being recycled in a way that's meant for thriving and not for just survival, not out of emergency, not out of deficit, but out of thriving and out of abundance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of the concept behind the periods thing. Many women get so triggered when I talk about the periods thing. Um, and they think that I'm like attacking women and trying to take away their like sacred um, period monthly ritual thing. And it's, it's kind of programmed into women to be that, that it is like thing that's supposed to happen. And, you know, when you get your period, it should be a, a, a celebration of some sorts for you because it is, you know, sacred fluid, like women use their period blood on their skin or some women drink it with their urine. Um, women use it for different things, set intentions to it. That's all beautiful stuff because the blood is sacred fluid and you can, you, you should really loop it or put it back on your skin, put it back in your body in some way because you're losing it. It's the same thing kind of as like peeing, you know, you're, you're bleeding. So right. you want to put that back in and stop the bleeding. So tampons are definitely a no-go. Um, all the chemicals that are on that, all fuck that. Um, free bleed if you're going to bleed and then in, we'll come back to inversions because inversions are a great thing to do especially during your period and especially like a couple of days leading up to your period to do inversions to kind of stop the bleeding it, it really actually does help yeah absolutely I mean when I read your post I was like 
wait a minute, everything that I know to be true is being challenged right now. And so like my work the last few years has been to expand my mind and not reject anything, right? Mm. Within reason. And so I asked a few friends, one, two, or, two who are doctors, one of them who specializes in female reproductive health. And, you know, they were just like, oh, well, what about all of the traditions? What about all of the, you know, the, the, the red tents and the women menstruating together? And after I listened to Dr. Blair's video, I completely stand behind the idea that consciousness can be shifted with an intention, right? So whatever was planted in, whatever psyop happened <laughs> that was planted in to shift the consciousness of women to believe that they're supposed to be menstruating and they're supposed to be suffering in childbirth and they're supposed to be communing over this monthly happening, I, I can totally get behind that. Like I can totally understand that it's a form of mind control. Um, and so, you know, I've just, I've just been like following this line of inquiry and I, I typically don't speak about anything until I've experienced it myself. So I'm actually curious to get into a state where I detox to the point that I'm, I lose my cycle. Like, I'm really curious to see what that looks like, like what that closed loop system looks like, how I feel. Um, because definitely every woman I've brought it up to has been triggered. There's just a lot of fucking trauma and baggage when it comes to menstruating because of the way that society has also shamed women for menstruating, right? Yeah. You know? And that's what I'm misinterpreted as. People think that I'm shaming women for menstruating and it's totally not that. Right. But, but that's, that's, the, that's the terrain you're walking into is like, you know, some women, they get their period at 12 years old and their mother gets mad at them because it's inconveniencing them or because now they're scared their daughter's going to get pregnant. There's like so much baggage that comes with it. You know, um, yeah. I personally plan to have a huge party for my daughter whenever she gets her period in, you know, 10 years or whatever it is to celebrate that. Um, that was, that's always been my idea, but, but most people, it's not celebrated. It's not acknowledged. It's actually kind of like stuffed in the corner. It becomes the secret. And so there's just a lot of charge. And I think that's probably what you're coming up against. Yeah, definitely. And stepping into that space and trying to shed love in a way that kind of resembles the hate that women usually get around this topic, um, is very, very triggering. And I really do aim to come from a place of love. And you'll see in the comments of those posts, when women really clap back at me and really get super mad, like, I'm not getting mad back. I expect this. I know that you're going to get mad. I'm here to share information with you and just let you know that you don't have to suffer. Like, you know, you don't have to shoot the messenger, but if you want to, I mean, we're just on Instagram anyway. So, but yeah, I mean, at least as long as like it gets people thinking, you know, and that's kind of the whole idea is just to get women thinking about the fact that, wait, maybe I'm not supposed to suffer. It actually does kind of make sense that I shouldn't be in pain once a month just because I'm a woman. It doesn't make any sense. And it really doesn't. And I feel like the whole concept of like the red tents and women coming together over menstruation, it's kind of like a, um, it, it is like a mind control. It's like, okay, let's get women to come together and all identify with their suffering together and be like the team of sufferers instead of rising above that and being like, okay, we don't need to suffer. We can come up with this together and, and get our health on point and be powerful. Like how Dr. Blair talks about in Kemet, like women of the past who were rulers, who were queens, they weren't bleeding. Right. 
They weren't releasing their power. Well, it also perpetuates the victim mentality that so many of us want to be in, right? It gives us a narrative that we can hold on to. It gives us some sense of reality in this world is to be in victim state, right? And to be in reaction all the time. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, powerful topic about the periods and definitely um, I'm curious to see how this journey works out for you as well. Um, some of my clients have had some really profound stuff happening. Like I used to teach, I was telling you before we got on the podcast that uh, I used to teach that nine week breathwork course. And I had several women who were losing, not losing, but like stopped bleeding during their, during the process of the, the nine weeks. And most of them lost it pretty early. I actually had a girl uh, stop bleeding within nine days from breathwork bootcamp. Um, I think that was in April or January this year. The first, the first round of Brother Bootcamp, she was like, I, I didn't even really get a period. And all I did was fast for nine days. And yeah, and, and do the breathwork and sleep on the floor and all the stuff, you know, the urine therapy, all the stuff that we do in Brother Bootcamp. And in that nine-week course, I had multiple women um, throughout the, the months that I did that course. Uh, and that was a one-on-one working with people individually. They got pregnant without bleeding, like two months, a month and a half after not bleeding at all and, and got pregnant and I have beautiful children now. Mm-hmm. And that to me really confirmed what I was already thinking. And that kind of gave me the, the experience that allowed me to have the confidence to post about it where it's like, I've really seen this in action. I've seen women really get healthy, really look vibrant, tell me that they feel better than they've ever felt in their life and also not bleed and then get pregnant. All right. Hey everybody. Sorry about that. We got cut off. Uh, my Wi-Fi is a little choppy here in the Dominican. So uh, we're going to end the podcast here, considering we talked for two and a half hours and we went into a lot and there's a lot we could still go into, but we're going to end it for here and maybe do another episode in the future. So thank you, Ayla, for sharing the space with me. This podcast was nourishing to say the least. Um, you're amazing. And I'm glad that we finally got to meet and talk. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I learned a lot <laughs> as well. And I look forward to digging deeper into this. And um, I can't wait to to offer any kind of feedback to anyone who has questions um, about what we discussed today. We covered a lot of ground. Yeah, so if someone is looking to reach out to you, where can they find you? I'm on Instagram, Aila Birth. I'm also on Telegram. I'm offering a lot more uncensored, open education on Telegram. Um, so you can find me there, Ayla Quinco Birth, and on my website, I have a lot of free resources, a lot of podcasts, interviews, um, a lot of writing that I've done. Um, you know, there's just plenty of education that you can get into there just on my website, AylaQuinco.com. Nice. Okay. Awesome. Thank you again. Thank you everybody for listening. Grateful for every breath that each of you takes. This is the Grub from the Garden podcast episode, I believe six. So we'll see you in the next episode. Thank you for listening. Peace.